0: Every so often, we're going to every couple of months. We're going to have a special uh, series of, of sermons, two or three, that will be directed um, to the kind of questions or the kind of issues that seekers have, or people who are sort of on the, the periphery of Christianity. And um, we're starting one of those series now. One of the jobs that we have as a church is it's twofold: we want to encourage believers, strengthen believers, equip believers. And so the majority of our messages are directed primarily towards believers, though we always are, are open to uh, non-Christians and invite them to accept the Lord. But we also want to be about uh, sharing our faith with non-believers and people who aren't Christians or who aren't sure about it. Um, and so periodically, a couple times a year, we're going to have segments of sermons that will um, address the kind of questions that non-believers have. And uh, so for... The next two weeks after this one, I encourage you to invite friends who maybe uh, are not sure about Christianity or who are inquiring about Christianity, or maybe they're not, but they'll come with you anyways. Uh, I want to especially welcome any who are here who are maybe just considering Christianity. You don't know what this whole thing's about. You think this church is kind of weird, and the longer I talk, the weirder you think I am, and that's okay. Uh, Join the crowd. But uh, I want to welcome you here, and I want you to consider some of the things we're going to say. Uh, This morning, I want to talk about truth. And next week, I want to talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And the week after that, I want to talk about, on Easter Sunday, the resurrection. Pilate, when he was before Jesus, my voice is real raspy because I've been doing this uh, two-day-long gymnastics meet. In fact, it's still going on. My daughter's in gymnastics, and her team won yesterday. And, um, but, you know, when, when your daughter's out there and she's doing the floor exercise, it's kind of hard to think about the sermon tomorrow morning. because so you're out there saying, come on, today! So my voice is a little raspy, but you can put up with it. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? It's a question I've asked a lot. I asked my wife and she kicked me out. And, and uh, If there's any place I can stay after the sermon, please let me know. But I've, uh, I, I've asked this question quite a bit and, and uh, I, I've, I've thought long and hard about it. What is truth, Pilate says, in John 19. What is truth? There's a lot of different claims about truth out there. And how do you know who is right? How do you know what the nature of the world is? How do you know who to listen to? Do we have any ditto heads here? Does anyone know what a ditto head is? Oh, we got some back there. I know Jeff is. Uh, Dave is. Uh, Yeah, okay, we got some. This is Rush Limbaugh, the excellent broadcasting network, high atop the EBI building. And and he he named himself this week Rush Truth Limbaugh. I, I never knew the guy until... I See, I'm not a ditto head, but my, my teaching assistant is, and he let, lets me these tapes from Rush Limbaugh. And so he says that he's the truth. Well, is he right? He says he's the truth. But the Democrats say that they're the truth. Who's right? Here's a book. This is the Holy Quran. have read this? This is the Book of Islam. And they, whenever they read it, they, they, they chant it. It's that... ya. Uh, Die. It sounds real nasally. Is this, is this truth? Is this truth? Here's one. Have you seen, anyone here seen this book? It's the Book of Mormon. And that's the angel Moroni blowing his trumpet. It tells you about Jesus supposedly coming to America some 2,600 years ago. Oh, here's one. Science and Health, the Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy. My grandmother gave me this book uh, before she got very sick and died. Uh, <coughs> You're laughing at my grandmother. I don't believe you guys. No, it's... She was old enough. But that's Christian science, and they don't think you should ever get sick. Oh, this is a, this is a good one. First time I ever read this. Is Joe Balsamo here? He, he's been coming. He, he was an old friend of mine back in my druggie days. And uh, we, used to, uh, we used to sit down and read. This consists of the Vedas and the Upanishads, great ancient Hindu books. And we used to get completely hammered and read this thing. <laughs> Samkara is generally assigned. well. And it ta- Truth, according to the Vedas, is, is calling upon specific gods, but also realizing that you are God, and the Upanishads is even more explicit. It says everything is God. Everything is Brahman. You are one with all things. And I, I one time was, was thinking about that on mescaline and thought that I became one with a Christmas tree, and it scared the kajibras out of me. But this is a- I melted into the tree. It's a frightening experience. Don't ever do that. Some of you read this. Carlos Castaneda, The Teachings of Don Juan, uh, where he, he, uh, he smokes peyote and flies too. <laughs> Tertuitim organum. This is P.D. Ospensky, this Russian mystic, who really believes that when we die, our souls are fed to the moon. And, and, and if you don't want your soul to be fed to the moon, there's certain exercises you've got to do, and, and he has them for you here. Sun Yung Moon. the, div- ah, the divine principles. Sun Young Moon. The Unification Church. Uh, <clears throat> No more. The Bhagavad Gita. This is where the Hari Krishnas come from. Uh, Hari Krishna Krishna. You know, you've heard George Harrison's uh, great, "My Sweet Lord." Hari Krishna, Vishnu Vishnu. That's my sweet lord. I know I can't sing with beans, but that comes out of the Bhagavad Gita, great uh, Hindu classic of the uh, sixth century. Is is that truth? Here's the Jehovah Witnesses reasoning in the scriptures. Not Krishna Murti. Krishna Murti, Truth and actuality. He says there is no truth. You've got to find your own truth, which is no truth. you just got to kind of go on it. <laughs> Friedrich Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil, says that uh, you, you basically define your own truth. Oh, this is a, this is a, look at this. I really got mad at this book at one time. <laughs> this is called Rightly Dividing the Word. <laughs> this is Albert Camus. It's called The Myth of Sisyphus. I know it sounds like a disease, but it's the name of a book. The myth of Sisyphus. i got a bad case of Sisyphus. <laughs> and, and his basic theory is life is meaningless. Life is absurd. Life is purposeless. It's like this ancient Greek hero, Sisyphus, who was condemned to push a rock up a hill. That's what life is all about. And really, you should commit suicide. But in, in, in one way or another, if you just refuse to commit suicide, even though you really should because life is meaningless and worthless, that gives your life some kind of meaning. It, it, it infuses you with a little bit of meaning just to say, I'm not going to do it. And if you're contemplating suicide, don't read this book, because it's not going to help you very much. Oh, here's Soren Kierkegaard. Some of you uh, Kierkegaardians here? This is, yes, we got Melissa is, a, you know, whispering all during the sermon, aren't you? Um, concluding unscientific scientific postscripts, truth is subjectivity. You don't really know what is truth. Here's Runner's World. If you want to find truth, go out and run 100 miles and prove yourself to me. <laughs> here's my favorite, Elizabeth Clare Prophet. And she will dictate angels to you. A lot of claims of truth here. And here's an interesting one that I want to talk to you a little bit more about. This is called the Bible. This is called the Bible. (laughs) Here I thought I was going to have to argue for it. You guys are, you know, case closed. Let's go home. What I'd like to do with you this morning is share with you a little bit about why I think the Bible is different than any of these books. Now, I'm not saying there's no wisdom in these books. I've enjoyed reading them, and my library is full of books like this, and and there's insight there, some more than others. But I want to share with you a couple of reasons why I put my trust, when it comes to deciding what is true, when it comes to deciding what is false, when it comes to deciding how I should live, I put my trust in the Scripture. And I want to say why. It is not, I don't believe, simply... A leap of faith where you just got to say, oh, I'm too confused. I'm just going to do this because it's my culture, it's comfortable, or whatever. I don't think it's an irrational thing to do. I wouldn't do it, frankly. I wouldn't put my trust in, in Scripture unless I thought there's some good reason to do just that. So I want to share with you four things that I think are unique about the Bible. The first thing that is unique about this book, in contrast to all these other books, I'm just going to leave this here. I, I hope you, you know, don't mind. It, I feel very much at home when, when things look like this. Uh, my office is like this all the time. So, This book that I hold here is the most, this is the first point, the most attacked, has been the most attacked, most criticized, most analyzed book in the history of the world. And yet, people still believe in it. In fact, in spite of all of its uh, analysis and, and, and all of the criticism that it's been subjected to, especially over the last three or four hundred years in Western culture... The only thing that it succeeded to do, all that criticism, is to make the Bible the most verified book in the history of the world. In the last 300, 400 years, it's been accused of being mythological. It's been accused of having all sorts of archaeological inaccuracies. It's been accused of having all sorts of contradictions. It's been accused of having all sorts of folk legends in it. It's been accused of a lot of different things. And yet, people, and not just ignorant people, but intelligent people, people who study the matter, still continue to believe in it. Why is that? I remember the first time I, I, at the University of Minnesota, we've got some U of M students here. Thank you for being here. I love you. U of M students, you get attacked a lot if you're a Christian. You don't get attacked directly. No one beats you up or whatever. But in terms of the cultural milieu or the academic climate there, it's really oppressive to Christian beliefs. I remember going into a classroom. The Bible is literature. The Bible is literature. My first class at the University of Minnesota. Now, my faith was already kind of shaky because I'd taken a couple other classes before this and and, uh, during summer school, and it was already starting to erode my faith. But I went to this class, the New Testament is literature, taught by Professor Krawalbo. And uh, he had a chart, this huge chart that was up there, and it purported to show all the different contradictions in the Gospels how the stories don't match up, how there's all these problems in it. It it purported to show the different uh, uh, places where the the Gospels borrowed from other mythological stories of the ancient world, and my faith just sort of oozed out of my ear and dripped out the window. I thought, how can I believe it any longer? How can I go believe in this book? It's all full of holes. This man's destroying my faith, killing me softly with his song. (laughs) Tell him. What I found is this, and I can't go into it in a lot of big detail, but I found this. Now, I, I lost my faith uh, for about six, seven, eight months uh, after this period of time, and that's when I read some of these other books. Uh, well, try out Camus, Trial Nietzsche, try out Trial try out the Quran. But what I found is that, in light of all the criticisms, if you look hard enough, if you examine it thoroughly, if you wait upon the evidence, I haven't found that any of them hold up. I haven't found that any of them hold up. In fact, what I found is this. If you study the history of the criticisms that have been made about the Bible, what you find is time and time again, critical scholars, unbelievers, are so confident that their criticisms of the Bible are going to stand, and time and time again, further evidence proves the Bible to be correct. Let me just give you a couple examples, and I promise I'll try not to bore you. They used to say that Moses couldn't have possibly have written the Pentateuch. Couldn't have possibly have written the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Moses couldn't have written it because Moses lived about 1500 B.C. And writing, we know for sure, didn't didn't begin until about 800 B.C. So Moses is about 700 years too early for writing to have started. What happened is some people around 700 B.C. wrote the Pentateuch, and then they attributed it to Moses, this legendary figure who probably never existed. If you read books 100 years ago, some of the criticisms 100 years ago, they were so confident of this. The assured results of higher criticism show that writing didn't start to exist until 800 B.C., What we found about 75 years ago, however, was we dug a little deeper. We dug a little further. We we got some more evidence from archaeology. And we've discovered pieces of writing, pieces of literature that date back to 3600 B.C. Ancient Samaritan texts, Sumerian texts, date back to 3600 B.C. There's no grounds then upon which to argue that Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible. The scholars were off by 400%. They used to also say that Moses couldn't have written the the, the Ten Commandments because, you see, we we know a lot about cultures in this time, and cultures were far too primitive to have such a lofty ethical ideal like the Ten Commandments. No way could the Ten Commandments have existed in a primitive culture like Israel. What we now know, however, is that there are cultures that predate Israel by a thousand years who have codes of ethics that in some ways are parallel to to the Ten Commandments. Further evidence proves the Bible correct and the criticisms of the Bible wrong. They used to say, the Bible talks a lot about this group of people called the Hittites. The Hittites. And uh, it says that they are a ferocious people, a real vast empire and all this other kind of stuff. And scholars, you see, up until very recently, we didn't have any evidence of the Hittites. And the scholars would say, well, look at if there was this group of people called the Hittites, we should have found some some archaeological evidence of it. We should be able to find some some findings that show that there are some Hittites. So the Bible, they concluded, must be wrong. It can't be true. The, the, The Hittites are a mythological people that somebody in the Old Testament made up. No fact to it at all. 1879, some archaeologists discovered a whole library full of tablets that refer to the Hittites. In fact, since 1879, we've discovered over 10,000 artifacts of the Hittites or writings that refer to the Hittites. We know more about the Hittites now than almost any other ancient people. People write volumes now called the History of the Hittites. Once again, the Bible holds up under criticism in light of further evidence. I could go on and on and on about this. One recent one is they used to say that, that Luke was off his rocker when he said that they held a census in Bethlehem, that they gathered all the people together when, when, when they would take a census, and that's how Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem. And that Quirinius, a man named Quirinius, he was the governor back then. Well, see, we had some, first of all, that seemed like a very unlikely way to take a census. Who would take a census by calling everyone together into their, their, the town of their birth? Couldn't it be possible? Untrue, Luke made it up. I could think of an easier lie if I was Luke. But then this Quirinius, we know that Quirinius reigned in 20, 21 to 25 AD, right around there. And so we thought, Luke must be wrong. Luke, Luke didn't know who reigned there. He, just, he, just, he knew about a Quirinius, so he say Quirinius was reigning back then. Well, see, what we've discovered very recently is that Quirinius apparently reigned twice because we know for sure that he was reigning over Bethlehem in, in 4 BC, which is precisely the time that Jesus was born. Either that or there's two people named Quirinius, which, which is a, another possibility. The point of the whole thing is this. The Bible has been the most criticized, most analyzed, most attacked book in the history of the world, and yet it has repeatedly stood up under those attacks. And it's the most believed book in the world today in spite of all those attacks. People who are specialists in the field of archaeology, specialists in the field of Semitic history, specialists in the field of Semitic theology, or Semitic languages, and even specialists in theology, believe in the Bible, in, light of all, in spite of all these criticisms. If it was just a human book, if it was just a human book, it'd be easy to show it as being that. I, I, could, I could do that with, with the Quran and these other books. In fact, I, I'm doing that right now in a class I'm teaching, just showing the different contradictions and the problems involved in some of these other books that claim to be divinely inspired. With the Bible, however, it never, it never holds up. little closing point here. Voltaire said, Voltaire said, some of you know this, In the 17th century, he said, oh, in the light of all the criticisms of the Bible, in the light of all the scholarly advances that we're making against the Bible, within a hundred years, he predicted, the Bible will simply be found in museums. It'll be an artifact of Western culture. No one with half a brain is going to continue to believe in the Bible. Voltaire was wrong. Voltaire was wrong. In fact, one of the ironies of history is that after his death, uh, they ended up selling his, his house, his mansion, to a Bible publishing company. And to this day, they're printing Bibles out of there by the thousands. Uh, Voltero's a little bit uh, mistaken on that. <laughs> number one. Point number one. The Bible's the most resistant, resilient book in, in all of history. Point number two, and I want you to follow me on this one, because this is, this is a real interesting one. First point was boring. This one's going to be kind of interesting, I think. The Bible has supernatural features like no other book in the world has. Okay? The Bible has, I'm going to argue, supernatural features like no other book in history has. For one thing. The Bible has hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in it that are fulfilled. A prophecy is where someone tells the future. And I'm not talking about Gene Dixon kind of stuff. You know, someone tomorrow will have a headache. Uh, (laughs) Sometime before the turn of the century, there'll be another earthquake. Or, you know, stuff like that. Horoscope, Zodiac, baloney. No, in the Bible what you find is detailed particular prophecies that are fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later that a person in their ordinary mind and their ordinary thinking could have have never predicted. It shows the supernatural influence of God. Let me just give you one, okay? Just just, just one example of that. This is from Ezekiel 26. Now, just listen very carefully. Ezekiel is prophesying against a town or a city called Tyre. T-Y-R-E. T-Y-R-E. Tyre. And Tyre, at this time, is the most economically prosperous and the most military-fortified city of the ancient world. It's, it was this incredible seaport off the Mediterranean Sea. It was like the equivalent of New York City. And it was thriving. Ezekiel, when Tyre has this uh, this, this uh, metropolis going, makes this prophecy. Listen to this. He's writing here at 590, 590 B.C., and that's not disputed. Scholars, scholars, uh, it's easy to date this book, and it's stated about five ninety. He says this: "This is what the sovereign Lord says: I am against you, O Tyre, for a lot of different reasons. I'm not going to go into it. They were they were naughty, and I will bring. Listen, to this: I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves, like sea casting wave after wave after wave is going to come against you, Tyre. I'm going to bring many nations, and it's going to be nonstop, like the waves casting up at sea." They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble... I'm going to scrape away her rubble and make her flat as a bare rock. You're going to be leveled. Listen to this. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets. You spread fishnets over, the, over flat rocks to dry them out, okay? For I have spoken, declares the Lord. She will become plunder for the nations. Let's go down a little bit. They will plunder your wealth, these nations... And loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses, and throw your stones and your timber and your rubble into the sea. Now think for a second. Why would anyone? Why would any army take the time to pick up the rubble of a city and throw it into the sea? That's a, that's an odd prophecy, don't you think? New York City, you're going to be destroyed. Not only are you going to be destroyed, but all of your rubble is going to be thrown in the sea, and you're going to be made flat as a rock. Very unusual. And then if you look down a little bit further, let's see. Oh, you will never be rebuilt, verse 14, for I, the Lord, have spoken. You're you're never going to be rebuilt. If you're ever rebuilt, this prophecy is wrong. Someone's going to go and try to rebuild it just to prove it wrong. And finally, listen to this. I will bring you to a horrible end, and you will be no more. You will be sought, he says, but you will not be found. We won't even be able to find you. Okay, you get the elements of the prophecy here? Here's what happened. This is prophesied in 590. In in, in 574, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, comes against Tyre, wages war against Tyre, destroys most of the mainland. The inhabitants move out to an island off of the coast, which they also owned, and rebuild the city there. But the city is, is for the most part, destroyed with Nebuchadnezzar. What happens is that 250 years after that, Alexander the Great comes against the city of Tyre. About 700 years, 800 years after that, the Muslims come and conquer uh, the city of Tyre. I forgot to tell you that about 400 years before that, Antiochus came and conquered the city of Tyre. And in the Middle Ages, the Christians came against the Muslims and conquered again the city of Tyre. One historian says, a secular historian says, that the history of the city of Tyre has been the history of war and bloodshed from the 6th century on. From the time that this prophecy was made, it's been wave and wave and wave of nations coming against the city of Tyre. Not only that, but listen to this. When Alexander the Great, in the 4th century, came against the city of Tyre, all the inhabitants had moved out to this island, like I said. Are you following me here? All the, th- th- there's still all the rubble left from ne- ne- Nebuchadnezzar, but the inhabitants are off in this island. Alexander the Great, this military genius, didn't possess a naval fleet. Didn't possess a naval fleet. So he wants to conquer these people, and how is he going to do it? He takes his army, and he bulldozes, as it were, the debris of the city into the Mediterranean Sea to form a walkway from the coast to the island to make a causeway to get out there. Bulldozes it all in there, l- makes the thing flat as a rock so that he can go out there and attack this, this uh, city that's now out in the island. And all the debris are pushed in there. If you go to where Tyre used to be, what you find is nothing but flat rock We can't find any artifacts of Tyre because it's all lost somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. The prophecy said you'll never be found again. And that's true of the ancient city. We can't even find it. We're not even sure exactly where it was because all the debris is cast in the the sea. There are all along this coast, however, little fishing villages. Little tiny towns, fishing villages. And what you find is on this great big expanse of vast rock, these fishing villages, these fishermen, lay out their nets there and use that flat rock to dry out their nets just exactly as the Bible prophesied, in detail, how the, Bob, how the Bible prophesied it. It's pretty hard to convince me that this is just you and guessing. This is just sort of Gene Dixon rolling of the dice or something. It's hard to convince me that this is just an ordinary book with an ordinary man writing with ordinary speculation. There's no way he could have known this 500 and 1,000 years ahead of time and predicted it in such detail. That, I think, shows the inspiration of the Bible. What it does for me is it tells me when the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, I'm going to listen. Because he said, Thus saith the Lord against Tyre and numerous other places. And to me, it's one credibility. In some ways, even more fascinating is this. There are, as I said, hundreds of prophecies in the Bible like this. Some of the most fascinating occur concerning the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. Let me just throw this out here. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 and on. 800 years before Jesus is born, he predicts that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. He predicts that his name will be called Emmanuel. He predicts 800 years before the Messiah comes that he'll be bruised, he'll be smitten, he'll be crucified. 800 years before they even think of crucifixion as a form of execution. He tells us that the Messiah will be crucified, that the Messiah will be whipped. Micah tells us 500 years before the Messiah comes in what town he's going to be born. They tell us about the wise men coming to visit Jesus. They tell us about him being betrayed by a friend, which, was, which of course was Judas. Micah tells us 500 years before the time that the coming of the Messiah will be preceded by a messenger who is, who is John the Baptist. Time and time and time again, dozens and dozens of times, we have prophecies about the person of Jesus and what lineage he'll be born, where he'll be born, what the circumstances of his life will be, what the circumstances of his death will be, that he'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That was prophesied. And it goes on and on and on and on. All of it, I believe, showing that this book is like no other book in history. There's good reason to believe that this book is inspired by God. It's got things going for it that others don't have. Let me give you two other things real briefly. The third point that sets the Bible apart from all other books. As I'm not degrading other books. They're good. Read them. There's a lot of wisdom there. Mm. Good. Now, having said that, they're not inspired by God. The Bible is. There's no book, number three, that has the message, a message like the message of the Bible. There's a beauty, a profundity to the biblical proclamation that you simply can't get in any other book. In fact, the beauty of the Bible is such that it's so unexpected, it's almost bizarre at times, yet bizarrely beautiful, that no human being would have ever thought about concocting such a thing. Other books will tell you about what human beings think about God. But the Bible tells you about what God thinks about human beings. Other books will tell you about how humans need to seek after God. But the Bible tells you about how God seeks after us. Other books will tell you about what what works we should do and what sacrifices we should make for God or the gods. The Bible tells you about how God works for and sacrifices himself for us. Other books will tell you about how to be saved by your works, but the Bible tells you about how to be saved in spite of your works. And because of God's grace. And he does it in an unexpected way. It tells us that God Almighty, who would have ever ever thought of this? God Almighty loves this little race of people on this little speck of dust in this far off solar system. God Almighty loves these people even though they're sinners. God has a passion for them. And throughout history God pursues them. He wants to be with them. And God Almighty, the God of this universe, is willing to do anything and has done everything to save them. That they might throughout eternity live with him. To the point, the Bible says, where God became a human being. God became one of us. God became a man and lived among us and was persecuted and finally died on the cross, was smitten, was mocked, was spit upon, was whipped, and finally crucified, just as the prophecy said. Who would have ever dreamt up a story like that, where God inflicts upon himself the punishment for our sin? To the point where God Almighty cries out on the cross, and let this just puzzle you, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're trying to create a nice story, a nice fairy tale, a nice little concoction, something that's going to sell in the marketplace of ideas, if you're trying to fabricate that kind of thing, you don't say stuff like this. This is too weird. It's too weird not to be true. But it's weird in a good way, in a beautiful way. There really is no message that comforts the soul like the message of the Bible. There really isn't. And I've read a lot of them. There's no, there's no story that satisfies the questions of the mind like the story of the Bible. There's no message that encourages the spirit and gives hope to the despairing like the message that you find throughout Scripture. Written by 44 different authors, collected in 66 different books, written over 1,500 years of time, and yet there's one theme, one message that runs throughout the, entire, uh, in the entirety of Scripture about God's love and sacrifice for us. The, book is, the Bible is the most resilient book in the world. The Bible has supernatural features about it like no other book in the world has. The Bible has a message that no other book has. And fourth, no other book has the transforming power in your life like the Bible has. The Bible says this itself when it says that God's word shall not return unto him void. It will do whatever God wants it to do. You can't hear the word and you can't read the word without the word impacting you. It begins to make a difference in your life. Even when you read it and you have a lot of questions, even when you read it and you don't understand it all, God has given a promise that he anoints his word and just to be digesting it is to be bringing spiritual nourishment to your soul. Just before I became a Christian, and this isn't coincidental, I began to read the Bible. I had read the Upanishads. I'd read the Bhagavad Gita. I'd read the I Ching. I'd read all these other kind of things, and, and it hadn't worked for me. I began to read the Bible. I'm not even sure why. I used to hide it under my pillow because in case my dad walked in, I didn't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> Isn't that weird. I, I didn't know anything about the Bible either. I'd went to a, a Catholic school for, for six years, but I didn't know the Bible. I I, I was uh, reading the Gospels. And when I got to the second gospel, I began to worry because it started repeating itself. And I thought, wait, I already read this. I didn't know anything about the Bible. But it began to stir in me. I didn't understand it all. But not coincidentally, I met a young lady who happened to be going to a church. And she did, She wasn't a Christian, but that's why she was dating me. But, uh, but she brought me to the church to win a, a, a blow dryer in a, in a Sunday school contest. <laughs> that's how you build a church. You offer blow dryers no, you can do your hair by saving souls. (laughs) And she didn't even win it. But God won me. I came into her shock, to her amazement, and kind of to her, you know, disbelief, and she's kind of mad about it. I became a Christian. Part of it was that the seeds were being planted by the Word of God. When you're discouraged and down or confused or just don't know the way, there's a comfort here, there's a strength here, there's an anointing here, the Spirit of God is here in a way that you just don't find in any other books. As much comfort and as much insight as they might bring you, what happens in the Bible is that the transforming Spirit of God rests upon it. And God binds himself to use the Bible in a way that he doesn't use other books. The Spirit of God is here, and in reading the Scripture, you become introduced to the one who authored the Scripture. The Scripture brings you to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to encourage you, even more than the intellectual questions about about, you know, proving that it's the Word of God, I encourage you to test it. Start reading it. But watch out. It's going to change you. If you, don't want, if you never want to be changed, if you're happy the way you are, and you want to continue in your way of life, don't read the Bible. Because if you start to read it, you're going to get screwed up. It's going to start to confuse you. You're going to start to be pulled. You'll start to fall in love with Jesus. Jesus will grab your heart. And before you know it, you're going to be a Christian. He may make a preacher out of you. He does that once in a while just for good humor. Watch what I can do with this guy. <laughs> it's an anointed book, and I encourage you, believer and non-believer alike, to start to start reading it. It proves itself in your life. it proves itself to the mind. It doesn't answer every question that we might have in life. It was not meant to. It doesn't solve all the problems you have in life. But at the most fundamental being, part of your being, in your gut, in your soul, you're going to find a strength and a comfort, a way there to live. Answers to some of the fundamental questions in life you just don't find anywhere else this morning if you're not a believer and what i'm saying is starting to 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 prick you it's starting to move you you want to inquire more i encourage you as we're dismissed to come forward and there'll be some people up here if if you want to pray they'll they pray with you if you want to accept jesus as your savior they'll be glad to do that if you want to just talk and you have more questions about it feel free to come up in fact i'll be up here you want to fight with me come on i'll take you on i'll be glad to do it um just let, just open yourself up to whatever God would have for you. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that in the middle of a confusing world, a world that has many different voices, many different claims, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a light. It doesn't, Lord God, solve all of the questions that we might have about our lives personally, Lord God, but it, it gives us a direction and a strength and an encouragement that we could never have on our own. I thank you for your word, Lord. It's a lamp unto our feet I thank you for the power that it has, God. I thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us to speak to us. I thank you, Lord God, that you respect our minds enough to not expect us just to believe it because someone said so, Lord, but you give us evidence of it. You give us proof of it, Lord God. You respect our intelligence when you tell us that you've spoken. I pray, God, especially for any who might be here this morning who don't know you, Lord. Give them the freedom, Lord, to know that we're not threatening and to come forward and, and, and raise whatever questions they have or maybe even enter into a relationship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, giving you thanks.